The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Placards, donkey jackets and pickets gathered around braziers. The unions are back in the news. With the largest number of striking workers, according to some estimates, since 1926, Britain is getting used to once again to shop stewards and industrial action. And the sometimes strange titles and acronyms of the organisations bringing out the workers. Unite, Unison, Aslef, Usdor. Union membership is creeping up. It dropped from 13 million in 1979 to fewer than 6 million under a third of employees, now it's closer to 7 million. And even if it's not beer and sandwiches in number 10, as it was in the 70s, union leaders are back on TV and in the political discourse. So is the cost of living and a growing wealth gap bringing union power back? Will the planned new law to curb the scope of strikes rein them in? And how far will Labour, the party the unions created and funded, be willing to work with them if it becomes the next government? That's this week. The Why Curve It is an interesting situation we find ourselves in, isn't it? Because actually the unions, I mean, are very much clearly back in the news because almost everybody is on strike, uh, particularly in the public sector. But this time, I sense they're not the enemy. I mean, in the, you know, back in the Thatcher era, there was something that needed to be tackled. This time, the public seems to be on their side. There's a historical anomaly here. Because, I mean, I have to say, in the 70s, yes, there was a lot of finger pointing at the unions. Unions were extremely strong, as we said. Mm. 13 million people belonging to them. But this whole kind of demonization of the past and then the heroes of today, I mean, that feels too simple to me. But it is certainly true that if you look at even some of the Tory supporting newspapers, they're taking things like the nurses. They are not opposed to what they're doing. Even even the rail strikes, there's mm. a certain feeling that maybe these people are not being well paid. Mm. And I think there is a change there. But Still, the numbers are not what they were in the 70s. So how much power do these guys really have? And I, I guess one of the problems I have, I mean, everyone, you want to make sure everyone gets paid a, a fair pay packet for the work that they do. But how much of you know what you end up with is related to the power of your union? So it does mm. seem crazy. And I think a lot of people think this. Should a train driver... You know, which is, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know... You think train drivers are paid too much? Well, you know, they're driving along tracks, which are, yeah. you know... I mean, you don't even need to steer. Uh, whereas nurses, you know, they've, they they are working... I mean, no one can deny nurses well, work harder than train drivers. Yeah, and yet, you, train drivers are getting paid more than no, nurses but when are. you start getting into that, oh, you know, I mean, is a, is a, is a university lecturer worth more than a fireman? I mean, it, it doesn't... It, those kind of comparisons, I think, you can't really do. It, it, it In the way, it is what the market says he's the right pay for these people in mm. the normal course of but events. Nurses, but if they're in the public sector, of course you can't do it. But we are in an unusual situation with nurses going on strike because nurses mm. have in the and past... And doctors coming up too, it looks because like. Because they have in the past said, well, I, you know, it, um, I, I can't not work because the job that I do is so important to society. So we, 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 when we're at a stage where they say, well, actually, we, you know, we've got to say something mm. now. But in the past they haven't, whereas other workers can strike because they don't have that same ethos, perhaps, or that, you know, lives don't depend on what they do. So they go on strike, they get a higher wage. Which gives them power. And and the unions are a way of organising that power. I suppose I think what's going on here is that the, the government is not used to this idea of unions coming out and saying give us money or we strike it, 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 in a real way of, of disruption mm. it's not been the history of the last well mostly the last 20 years so I think they're unused to it and they're unused to this idea that they get down and negotiate yeah 
Interestingly, I mean, trains, train drivers are the exception or the, or the rail industry. Most of the people going on strike are public sector workers. And that is because public sector wages have been held back. They've not gone up as much as private sector wages. They've fallen much further behind uh, on inflation. And the government would say, well, that's because we don't have the money. Yeah, but in a sense, rail workers are public servants. This is one of the well, things. The government has now said to, mm. to, to, to the rail companies, yes, you can offer X. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a so, minor difference, really, yeah, in that yeah, sense, yeah, I think. Yeah. So, it is, so it's public sector. It is public sector because we do know that wages are going up in the private sector. Yeah. So maybe it is the only way the unions have. It used to be the unions against private companies was the big thing. You know, remember the British Leyland strikes and all the rest of it. But it isn't anymore. Yeah. And how much uh, credence do we put on the argument as well from the government that, well, we've got to make sure wages don't rise too much because that's going to cause this circle of inflation. But I mean, if, I mean, that's a weak argument when you're looking at the public it's sector because, the, because the growth has been like 2% yeah, and inflation's yeah. around 10%. Yeah, so. And we know that the markets don't drive all that directly. Mm. But anyway, let's let's dig into whether the unions are an answer to this. Are the unions actually coming back to being in, in some measure of power? We're going to talk now to Gregor Gould. He's professor of industrial relations at Glasgow University, also editor of the Scottish Left Review. He interestingly also has a biography coming out soon of Mick Lynch, who is perhaps the most interesting figure coming out of this current union rise. He, of course, being the leader of the RMT. Anyway, let's talk to Gregor now. So, I mean, talking about Mick Lynch, there's an interesting thing because he is quite a charismatic man, isn't he, Gregor? And I feel like at the moment, I was just saying just before we started talking to you, that it feels like uh, at this point in time, the general public is behind trade unions, perhaps in a way that they've not been for, for quite some time, if ever, in fact. Yeah, and in fact, Mick Lynch, you know, a, a big figure in a way that I mean, you have to go back to like like Joe Gormley or or Arthur Scargill maybe to get the same kind of profile. Yes, he's um, he has a number of things going for him. Um, he's very calm and collected when he's interviewed. He's also quick witted and he's not verbose, so he gets his point mm. over quickly, but also in quite a deadly manner. As I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware from the likes of when he's been interviewed by Piers Morgan, Kay Burley. And Richard Madeley. So he has all those things going for him. But in addition to that, um, because he is the General Secretary of the Rail Maritime and Transport Union, uh, whenever their members on the railways take industrial action, take strike action in particular, it has a much higher impact, uh, it has a much higher profile than other industries or other sectors. So, for example, Dave Ward is the General Secretary of the Communication Workers Union, the CWU. And has his union in Royal Mail has taken probably slightly more industrial action, strike action in the last six months of 2022. And yet he doesn't have the same profile. And some of that's down to the fact he's a different character. But also, as I say, some of it's down to the fact that the mm-hmm. railways are, have a much higher profile when industrial action takes place because it has essentially more of a knock on impact upon the public, but also on the economy. Well, because but because that's the case, uh, Gregor, it's interesting because you'd assume then that people would be more hostile. But I mean, it does seem Mick, you know, as you say, he handles himself extremely well on on camera or on audio. But he's pushing at an open door. There isn't a there isn't a, he isn't a hate figure, is he? Why is that? But the only the only criticism, which I mean, I mm. think this is quite rife, are people saying, "Well, hang on a second. Why are rail drivers? Why is he fighting, for example, for rail staff to earn more when, if we compare it to, for example, how much nurses are getting paid? I mean, they are." Are, they're, they're comparatively doing quite well. Um, well, 
I think one of the reasons is that he is willing to talk about other issues and he's he's prepared, unlike some other union leaders, to talk more generally about how the cost of living crisis is not just impacting upon his members, but workers and trade union members more generally. So he does talk mm. about class issues. He talks about capitalism. He talks about inequality. Uh, and that does mean, I think, that... Um, what he says is, if you like, more interesting because of that. He's not just talking about simple RMT uh, issues all the time. Um, I think one of the things is that um, in addition to the fact that he's calm and collected, he doesn't get angry. Um, so he's never likely to storm out of an interview. And he also always comes across as not only reasoned, but reasonable. And I think it's in that sense that people understand that he has become, if you like, a working class hero because people see him standing up for workers. And what's interesting is that um, while there are many people that support the rail workers on the RMT in their dispute, that level of support is not now as high as it is for the nurses. So um, the, the nurses, uh, ambulance staff and firefighters in the, in the most recent YouGov polling uh, evidence from just before Christmas 2022, those groups, those three groups of workers were the only workers whose strike action was supported by more than 60% of those that were polled. The real workers are quite far down, comparatively speaking. But that doesn't detract from the fact that Mick Lynch is still seen as being speaking for a wider constituency. Um, the problem for the RMT is that although they have those levels of public support, power to shut down the rail network, as they have done on many occasions, isn't synonymous with power over the government. That is to get a deal along with the government and the, um, the train operators. Now, it's interesting you talk about the power there, because obviously people think back to the 70s, the time when unions were huge. I mean, 13 million members in 1979, now obviously much smaller. I think it went down about as far as 6 million, possibly up now towards 7 million, but still not at the same level. Um, and people feeling perhaps that unions are coming back, as you say, not with power necessarily over the government, but, but certainly greater influence than they've had for a long time. Do you think that's right? Yes, it is. I think the the roots of this stem from, um, one, the pandemic, when union membership did start to rise um, quite, you know, quite high or quite fast um, compared to what it had been over the previous decades. Some of that membership has been lost just because people wanted it as a safety net. But um, levels of public support for unions in general are much, much higher now. And that's down to a kind of much wider and longer factor, which is that um, particularly when the Labour Party under Keir Starmer is not seen as being supporting workers in struggle as much as it used to under the likes of Jeremy Corbyn, then people are looking more directly to unions. Now, we won't know until, say, next this summer and the summer afterwards what impact that has had on the levels of union membership. But I wouldn't be surprised if it has gone up. And alongside the increase in membership, levels of public support, as you've already, as you've already indicated, are much greater. The, the, the challenge for the unions is to turn higher membership and higher levels of public support into winning their bargaining demands. And so far, since the kind of cost of living crisis has emerged in the second half of 2022, it's really only been Unite members um, led by Sharon Graham, the General Secretary of Unite, in the likes of transport and uh, 
refuse collection that have won the double digit pay rises. So the unions, as I say, still have a more general challenge to achieve those kind of outcomes elsewhere. So it is largely the public sector, isn't it, that, that uh, the strike action is, is coming from, and that is because they have fallen so much. I mean, the, the growth in wages in the public sector is way below what it's been in the in the private sector over, over the last year. The government, of course, would say, well, hang on a second, you know, we just spent a fortune try, trying to get through the pandemic. We just don't have the money to, to meet these pay demands. So where does where does this end? I mean, they, they have got a point, haven't they? I mean, we are running massive uh, government debt. Do we just keep on adding to that? And then they would say, well, if we keep adding to that, you know, the inflation risk gets worse. So how does the government manoeuvre? How do we find a happy ground in the midst of all of this? Um, I think there's a n- number of parts to response to that. One is that um, last week, um, a House of Commons Select Committee, uh, I think, publicised the National auditing office figure of which was that £43 billion of tax is not being collected as it should be. Now, that would make quite a substantial difference um, to the mm. level of government deficit. We also have the issue that um, taxes on the on corporations, companies and the very wealthy could take uh, you know more of the burden. So there is room for manoeuvre there. Um, I think in terms of being the government, one of the issues is how quickly those taps can be turned on and off. That said, uh, as Steve Barclay, the health secretary, has indicated, and he's actually asked the unions to lobby Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak on the issue, some of the Conservatives, some of those in government do want these disputes to be resolved. And I think that suggests that there's, if you like, doves and hawks in the Conservative Party. The hawks are the ones who want to have a confrontation with the unions because they think that's the way that the Conservative Party will resuscitate its electoral fortunes in the run-up to an election either later this year or, or next year. Um, the Doves, I think, maybe the likes of Steve, Stephen Barclay, are aware that this is not the best thing and uh, it may not resuscitate their electoral fortunes, but even prior to that, it's going to lead to the likes of the National Health Service or other public services to be really put in a catastrophic state. Do you think, do you think Rishi Sunak is uh, modelling himself on Margaret Thatcher here and, and he <laughs> thinks that if he plays it tough, then he'll come out as the hero at the end of all of this? Because I think he, if that is, if, if, and I suspect he does, and I think he might, he's thinking he might be a bit misplaced if that's the case. I think that the Conservatives, um, certainly if you look at the polls, are in such, um, you know, such a low ebb and Labour is um, so much you know, further ahead of them, it's 10%, 20%, sometimes more, that they mm. have got their backs against the wall and they think that this is um, you know, really the main strategy to get them to dig themselves out of that hole. But would it be any different if, we had, if, if there was a sudden shift and we had a Labour government next week? I mean, they would face exactly the same problems, wouldn't they? They would. Um, I mean, it's interesting that Keir Starmer has done very little to be so far ahead in the polls as leader of the Labour Party. Mm. I mean, really, his strategy is to say as little as possible so that there are no, if you like, own goals or self-inflicted wounds. But one of the interesting things is that um, if this was a truly Thatcherite strategy that the current government is deploying, what they've done is, is change the goalposts in one important respect. The Ridley plan, Nicholas Ridley, who was one of the Conservative ministers um, under Thatcher, he developed a plan prior to being in government in the late 1970s. It was called the Ridley plan. And it was featured in terms of how the government took on the National Union of Mine Workers and beat them. And essentially, it was about taking on one strong group of, of workers at one time, separating them from other workers so that there wasn't a more general fight back. 
But I think the situation of the current Conservatives is they're so desperate that they are effectively trying to take on all the different unions at the same time. They're only... um, uh, you know, card up their sleeve in this respect is that the unions are much, much weaker now than they were back in the times of the Thatcher government. Well, that's that's what I wanted to get into, Gregor, because I mean, we, we're talking about Nicholas really an awful long way back, of course, into the 70s. But the history of the trade union movement since then has been one of decline. I mean, obviously, there was the battle with the NUM in the 80s. and But since then, as we said, numbers have diminished drastically. Why do you think that is? I mean, we had the 80s when, I guess, there was the battle, as I say, with the NUM. But the 90s, again, numbers started to go down. Why has there been this huge dip in, in, in the trade union movement over the last Forty years, and is, is it because? Because an economist's answer to that would be, well, in the in the private sector, you know, unemployment is low. Theoretically, people have got bargaining power because they can just uh, there's labour mobility. If you if you're not getting the money you like, you switch jobs and get a better paid job somewhere else. But unemployment was huge right towards the end of the eighties and beginning of the nineties. Yeah, but we've not had that problem yeah. since. So is that is that part of the answer? No, I, I don't think it is. I think there are um, uh, specific factors. Um, which account for the decline in Britain. Of course, there are, um, you know, international or transnational factors which uh, have a role to play in, in accounting for the decline in Britain, and therefore you can obviously find them elsewhere. And in general, you know, one of those factors would be that all governments in public policy and in law, particularly with regard to trade unions and industrial action, have become much, much more hostile. So there is a there is a, a more difficult environment to operate in. But I think as an industrial relations academic, what I would flag up in particular are a number of factors. One is that it wasn't just the miners that lost in the uh, in the 1980s through uh, you know quite dramatic strike action. There was a host of other workers. Um, there was the whopping, uh, the News International Murdoch dispute. Mm. There were dock workers. There were steel workers. There were very few groups of uh, workers who won in the 1980s. One of which was the postal workers in 1988. So really, the, the pattern you have is that unions take um, quite considerable lengths of industrial action, strike action, and they lose. Now, the impact of that is to say to their own members and other potential members, unions are not as strong as they used to be, therefore maybe it's not worth being a member, certainly paying your dues or being active in it. That's one important factor, and it's not really until the 1990s that that starts to to peter out a bit. But we haven't yet had any big victories that would overcome that in terms of people's memories of those events. The second major factor is there has been a huge change in the composition of the economy in Britain. Essentially, we've seen the decline of heavy engineering, uh, private industries, coal, steel, docks, engineering, as I say. Uh, we've seen also the, the the fall in the size, the relative size of the public sector, which has been historically more highly unionised and is still at least twice as well unionised as the private sector. But alongside that, of course, there's been the development of the private sector, particularly in the service sector. And it's there that you have uh, mass levels of employment, um, sometimes precarious, sometimes part-time, but not very well paid, and the workforce there finds it difficult to organise itself, despite the fact that since the um, late 1990s, unions have invested millions upon millions of pounds in um, paying people to organise, you know, employing union organisers to go out and try and organise these workers. So I would flag up those as the main factors rather than it being to do with so labour market factors. Are unions the best way, actually, if we're, if we're looking at a, you know, a way that we can operate a society where there's a, a fair pay for, for people? 
are unions the best way forward? Because we've already identified, you know, there's personalities involved. There's the need to, uh, to, to get membership. There's costs involved in all of that. I mean, we have, at the very base level, obviously, we've got a minimum wage. Minimum wage has actually gone up almost 10% actually this year. It's gone from 9.50 to 10.42. Now, that's an, not uh, appreciating that we don't want everybody to be on a minimum wage, but that's a base. That's a good start, isn't it? And that is something that, you know, enacted by government. Could we do more to that? Could we say, well, okay, let's uh, let's have uh, some minimum levels based on uh, particular types of jobs? Do we have a minimum wage for nurses, a minimum wage for doctors, or a universal basic income that would, that would yeah, substitute is, that? Is well. there another way that the government, you know, that rather than union power? which is dependent on the membership and therefore it will vary from industry to industry. Is there a better way that could be uh, legalised and uh, and adopted across industries? Uh, I'm afraid that the answer is probably mostly no. Um, That's Mm. not to say that unions are the only means by which um, workers' living standards can be defended and even advanced. But it is to say that with the changes in the Labour Party in Britain, Um, You still need the unions not only to act industrially, but to act politically. If you talk about the introduction of the minimum wage under the uh, first Tony Blair Labour government, um, the union pressure to bring that policy about, along with some other ones about union recognition, was probably the key factor. So you cannot rely on the political system uh, in Britain alone um, for those uh, changes to happen. And in fact... I think the the clock, if you like, is stuck in terms of um, Starmer, Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party being very, very similar to that of Tony Blair. So, again, if there are to be, um, if there is to be rather progress made in terms of social protection, then I think it's going to come from forces either within the Labour Party, but not the leadership itself, or forces without the Labour Party. So, again, unions, whether they're affiliated or not. Um, if we go back further in the sort of historical um, calendar, as it were, there did used to be um, different um, wage regulations for different industries. There used to be things called wage councils, wage councils for shop work, wage councils for di- other different types of work. I remember as a teenager when I worked in a, a news agents, um, I um, was able to get time um three times the level of pay for um, working uh, on a Sunday. There was uh, different other times for over rate, uh, for overtime rates. There was also a whole load of other uh, regulations. Now, those were all abolished in the mid-1980s by uh, Margaret Thatcher. So um, we certainly could have not only just the minimum wage uh, and set at a higher level, but we could have much more specific protections, uh, social protections, wage protections, condition protections per industry. And I think that would uh, reflect... Um, something better, which is that not all the labour market conditions in each sector are the same. I think there is a need to tailor things but, to specific sectors. Well, we do have these these groups, these commissions, semi-government organisations that recommend pay levels. We know that's the case with the nurses, for example. Indeed, that's being revisited at the moment. So I suppose the structure is there, but the, you, you don't have much faith in these kind of institutions. Well, the, the peer review bodies are only advisory. Um, there aren't actually that many of them, uh, even within the, the public sector. We're, we're mainly talking about the NHS, um, the um, for those for those for the police, um, there aren't that many of them. As I say, um, their role is to uh, advise the government. The government is not bound in any, even in a moral sense, to um, act upon those recommendations. So, 
to put it very bluntly, they have no force of law. Um, in, in Britain, we have never had um, a, a very powerful system of arbitration because if, if you are to think about what are the alternatives to unions and strikes, then the most obvious answer is arbitration. But the um, standing bodies of arbitration in Britain, of which there are two essentially, have very little resources, have very little power. So uh, it's not really possible in Britain at any rate compared to some other countries to say, well, there are there are other ways of resolving disputes or there are other ways of um, setting pay levels. But just getting back to the, you know, the question I asked earlier about the relativities of, of, of salaries, and this was a point that Grant Shapps made, that you know, the median salary, these are his figures, so quite possibly wrong, but he said the median salary for a train driver is £59,000 compared to 31000 for a nurse and 21000 for a care worker, and you know, obviously which is the more vital service. So if those, are de- those wages are determined by the strengths of unions rather than the value of the work done, how do we overcome that? Um, Well, that would be a big task, but an essential one, because it does indicate that uh, in British society at the moment that certain jobs are not valued as much as they should be, um, either on Mm. their own, you know, in an absolute sense or in a relative sense. So one of the most obvious examples is that people give, um, parents give the care of of, uh, their children to others who are paid, you know, on the minimum wage or families whose um, uh, you know, sons and daughters whose parents are now quite elderly and have to go into care homes. They are, um, they're the care of those parents is put into the, into those hands of those people who, again, might be on a minimum wage. So there needs to be a recalculation, a reconfiguration of all those things. But the reason why uh, train drivers' salaries or wages are so it seems so high compared to others. It's actually down to the privatisation that was carried out by the Conservatives in the um, mid-1990s. The privatisation of the railways um, splitting up into, as it was then, RailTrack and all the train operating companies, um, that led to the franchises. The the first thing that the um, train operating companies did was to reduce their staff numbers and reduce their train train driving complement. Um, And that meant that the bargaining power of the train drivers for a quite considerable period was much, much higher. And then the the, um, the level of, of salaries or wages went up. Um, we don't have a comparable situation uh, in nursing, although ironically now there is a shortage of, uh, of nurses. There are not enough being trained going through the sort of college and university system. Um, so th- there are labour market issues, as I've tried to highlight with the, the train drivers, although those labour market issues are the result of human actions but there's also this wider sense of society and the political values in Britain are not aligned to saying that you know certain jobs should be better paid than they actually are. We have a you know big public debate to be had over that. But I was to say, what is the way to tackle that? Is it, is it a question of, in the public sector? Let's limit it to that because we can't, I suppose, necessarily do change what happens in the private sector. That's a thing of market forces. But in the public sector, is there should there be some mechanism put in place that assesses the value and fixes pay accordingly? Is that a conversation or even legislation we need to have? Um, I think it's certainly conversation we can and should have, whether it would be um, something just a result of public policy or legislation itself um, would be a matter for you know debate down, down the road. Um, it is the case that in much of the public sector, um, pay has, as you highlighted a few moments ago, pay, the, the actual real value of pay has declined year upon year 
not just in the last few years, but certainly um, since 2010, when you saw the first kind of austerity government after the financial crash. And what that means is that in the long term, people going into the public sector are less likely to do so because the wages are lower, the conditions are um, have deteriorated. And it used to be the case, if you go back 50 or so years, that many people's um, willingness to go and work in the public services was because they wanted to carry out a service for the benefit of the, the public. Um, the only benefit they would have had then was job security. They would have, um, you know, accepted that the wages were not as high as they might have got in the private sector, but at least they had job security and the potential for uh, career progression, in a sense. And a decent pension in many cases Absolutely, as well. Yes. That was, that was now, the fact that we're talking about these things, you know, does highlight how much has changed. There isn't the same job security. Pensions, as we know, have been changed quite considerably. And on top of that, you know, wages have fallen even further. So all those issues need to be resolved. Um, I would venture that none of the leadership of the major political parties are, one, talking about it in a serious way, and certainly when they do talk about it, haven't shown that they've grasped the scale of the problem. Um, yeah, because I mean, that, the scale is the issue, isn't it? Because I mean, it is asking for a lot more money. And it seems like if you are uh, running a private company and you've got a shortage of workers, uh, then you will have to push up salaries to try and attract people in. Whereas it seems in the in the public sector, the approach is we've got a shortage of workers. We don't want to ch- pay them more because we can't afford to do it. We'll just have huge gaps and just let that service run down. And, and then when the be- strikes happen and the unions in the public sector move, that's really the only point at which they tackle it, which then, brings us back to unions being the mechanism, perhaps, of the change you're talking and they, about. And what they're tackling is not just the fact that we're not getting paid enough, but also there's not enough of them. So hence, for the government's got two problems, hasn't it? They've got to pay more, and they've got to pay more people as well. It's a double whammy. So it's a, a massive increase in government spending that's being asked for. It is, yes. Um, but that's only one half of the equation, obviously a very, very important half of the equation. The other side is, to go back to some of the comments I made earlier, um, this um, National Audit Office report has suggested that £43 billion have not been collected in tax. We know that tax evasion and tax avoidance are quite widespread in Britain. Um, so there's an issue there. Now, again, that this funnily enough relates back to one public policy, as in it would seem that the HR, HMRC isn't always... Um, carrying out the function it should do in terms of, you know, making deals with different companies when they should be paying more, Amazon being the obvious case. But it's also, as the PCS union, which is the main union for civil servants, has pointed out, that the likes of HMRC are not well-staffed enough now to be able to collect all the taxes that they could and should be collecting. So again, even there, there is an issue about paying people uh, decent salaries with job security in order for them to do the job. But then it does go back to the the, the bigger issue um, about whether uh, windfall taxes should just be, you know, one-off windfall taxes for the energy companies or whether they should be um, permanent taxes. And if I may just add this point, quite often the argument against um, 
renationalisation or taking things back into public ownership is to say, oh, well, of course, the government would have to pay compensation. Mm. And while that is true, what's not taken into account is that when you renationalise the likes of an electricity company or an energy company or even a train operating company, they actually are revenue generating enterprises when they come back into the public sector. So it's not just yeah, paying well, out. Exactly. And, 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 and the profits money as well. Absolutely. And, and the profits can be ploughed back into, into services or to yeah. into government costs. Office. Absolutely makes make, makes perfect sense, and probably more support for that than uh, than uh, at any time in in recent history. So the the fact that we are so out of kilter now, I mean, a lot of this is obviously obviously does relate to the fact that people are saying, well, you know, inflation's ten percent, our our salary increases are nowhere near that. Uh, so that's why we're seeing more people coming out in in action over the last few months. It's got well out of kilter. Is that because we, because of that drop in union membership? And would that mean there's a case for actually saying, you know, perhaps we need to go back to almost closed shops, you know, where we say in certain industries, yes, you've got to be a member of a union because that keeps the balance between, uh, you know, particularly in the, in, the, in the public sector, how much the government wants to pay and actually what is a fair rate of pay? Yes, I, I think you make a strong point there that um, ironically, part of the situation that we're in is because unions are weaker and haven't until now been able to play the role that historically they have played before, which is to defend um, wages and conditions, and in particular, the union premium, that is to say the difference between if you work in a unionised sector and a non-unionised sector, that that difference has fallen. So all that does suggest that unions need to be a lot stronger. Of course, the other side of the the, the coin is that um, employers where unions have been weaker, have been able to get away with um, being unrestrained in terms of their own salaries for their chief executives and dividends for their shareholders and so on. And the point you make about um, uh, closed shops is an interesting one. Um, closed shops now are uh, are banned by, by law, they're unlawful. But what wouldn't be unlawful is an idea which myself and a couple of colleagues in New Zealand have developed over the last couple of years, which is called a union default. Uh, And the union default would be that ballots are held um, amongst, say, a group of workers. And if there's a majority, then all union members would be, all workers rather, would be defaulted into that particular union. But with the important proviso that any worker that is defaulted into that union also has the right to opt out after, say, two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be compulsory union membership as the closed shop was, where you could either where you either had to be a member of a union before you joined the company or certainly join when you had become uh, employed by it, that company. It's an interesting so we idea. A situation of, of, union, uh, of a union default situation, which would, uh, over time, certainly strengthen... Um, the the role and the influence that unions could, would have, and then would, if you like, sort out this issue that is at the moment out of kilter. Could you see a Labour Party government under Keir Starmer backing that? Um, no, not under Keir Starmer, no. Under Jeremy Corbyn, yes. And there <laughs> were um, policies which Jeremy Corbyn was advocating that were uh, complementary to well, that. Well, John McDonnell, John McDonnell was uh, you know, calling for, when he was the shadow mm. chancellor, that, uh, that we should have uh, representation on, on boards. There should be employee Indeed. representation. Which, of course, happens and, in Germany. And, and, exactly, and works works very yes. well. And, and um, I guess the point of all of that is, if you've got an ongoing process, you you know, these things are negotiated over time. 
on a piecemeal basis rather than hitting the the huge obstacles that we're seeing now. Yes, and if you remember, um, just before Theresa May um, became Prime Minister in her election pitch to the Conservative Party members, she actually talked about having worker directors as well. Mm. That was uh, shelved uh, not long after she became Prime Minister. But the country that's actually moved closest to this idea of having a union default for union membership is New Zealand. And there they have developed fair pay agreements, which is essentially sectoral bargaining rights, um, uh, where minimum levels of pay are established by unions. So there are some in the Labour Party who have shown quite significant interest in what's happening in New Zealand, particularly on the issue of fair pay agreements. And so that's possibly one area where even if Keir Starmer wasn't in favour of it, there would be sufficient support amongst others in the Labour Party for that to be moved forward. But I think you're quite right to say that realistically speaking, it would be a piecemeal change rather than, if you like, some kind of revolution. So, Gregor, we're drawing to the end of this discussion, but do you see the growth of unions, which which has happened? Do you think it going further? Do you think the experience we've been talking about, cost of living, the pressures on people, and perhaps just seeing unions in action over the last few months will mean that we go back to a position where they become important just because they have more people in them? Is that the direction we're going? Yes, it is the direction we're going in, but I think it can only go so far without major changes in the regulation of of unions um, and how the economy effectively functions in Britain. Uh, If if this current um, revolt against the cost of living crisis is to continue then you know the cost of living crisis at some point will will um, peter out um, whether that's towards the end of this year or next year in terms of just levels of inflation uh, being as high as they are now if that is to happen as some economists predict then clearly it means that unions wouldn't have quite the same um, momentum behind them and therefore that's why i say that there would have to be changes in terms of the employment law and industrial relations law in Britain. That's a lowercase m in a momentum, by the way. There is an issue, though, isn't there? If if everything is going fine, people don't feel like they need to be in a union. They only need to feel like they need to pay to be in a union if there's a, a problem that needs fixing. And, and if, if, if unions are successful, they'll fix those problems and then by default, people won't see the need to be in a union anymore. There's always going to be Unless they're problem. in it by default, which is what that system mm. we were talking about. Yes, that is, that is the catch-22 situation that, that potentially does exist, you know, one or two years down, down the line, which is why I'm saying that there would need to be changes in um, public policy and in legislation in order to yeah. uh, sustain current levels of union membership, if not also actually uh, increase them again, because the cyclic nature of the capitalist economy is that we will be back in this situation um, of a cost of living crisis, of economic crisis, yeah. so many years down the line. I mean, we're only, if you like, we're not much more than 10 years after the last major crisis of the, the global financial crash. Yeah. So it will happen again. And I think that's why we can't just leave it, leave it to um, what was the case in the 1970s when free collective bargaining, when unions were strong, unions are thought that their power would continue considerably. Of course, what happened was that the Thatcher government used the state to undermine unions. We now need the state to support unions in order that we can better cope with the next crisis when it happens. So there is a conversation, isn't there, to be had about the structure of how we we manage industrial relations going forwards. Just getting over uh, the the hurdle that we face now, how quickly, how do you see it playing out? Um, We need uh, a Labour government in power. Um, But that's two years away. 
Indeed, um, but I think uh, those are changes that need to be uh, put into place to be made, you know, permanent or semi-permanent at least. But we need a, a Labour government that's going to be much more progressive than the one that we're being offered under Keir Starmer. We also need, in the more immediate terms, for unions to work much more cooperatively together so that they can pack a bigger punch. Mm. Um, the 1st of February is probably going to be the first example of that, but it may not be as widespread as it needs to be. And it needs to be bigger in order to take advantage of the weakness that the, that the current government uh, exemplifies if um, public sector pay rises are to be much more generous in inverted commas. So you, see, so you see that we are going to have rising industrial action, perhaps Rishi Sunak getting uh, more entrenched in his view that he's not going to budge. Is that, are, are we just going to have a, a, a more uncomfortable few months ahead? Yes, I think I can't see any alternative at the moment. Um, it would be such a big climb down for the current government to say to civil servants, to um, NHS workers, to local government workers, "Okay, I'm sorry, you know, we got out, we got, we've got it completely wrong, and now here is something approximating to an inflation-proof pay level." And that would be such a big U-turn, even if it's popular, that it would undermine the credibility of, of the current government. Yeah, well, we, way, don't want, we don't want to take away that credibility that the government's got right now, do we? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> huge, of course. Well, it, it would undermine it to the extent that Liz Truss was able. To undermine her own uh, credibility Indeed. when she was So many more, well, months possibly, uh, you know, a winter of discontent turning into a spring of discontent in all probability. But uh, interesting to see, you know, we'll obviously see a lot more of the union leaders, I guess, as part of that. Gregor, thank you so much for being with us, uh, guiding us around the future of industrial relations, really, and indeed the past. So thanks for being with us. Fascinating discussion. Thanks, Gregor. Thanks very much to you. So I tell you one thing I've been trying to do, though, and, yes. it, and just to show how much Britain is broken right now. Yes. And there's no doubt Britain is broken, isn't it? I mean, nothing well, seems to be working correctly. Yes. I mean, it, it's, it's not in a good place. I'll I have been trying for months to mm. get a train up to see my mum yes. in Cheshire. Yes. And I'm renting a car now because there's no way in the world I can buy tickets. It's like no, it's, I, I buy tickets on trains. Well, I go to, well, I go, I use the app and it says tickets not available. Um, yeah, so Maybe you, I think, in this instance. Well, I'm buying tickets I'm, I'm up down to Manchester fairly regularly. Well, um, okay, but anyway, can you, yes, no, but, but have, can you buy a ticket for me then? All right, that's in my whole new, a, a <laughs> new business, a new business <laughs> I immediately. Can't get it to work. Maybe, yes, maybe Manchester's different, but anyway, everything seems very difficult yeah. at the moment because yeah. you know people are not doing what they should be doing because they're being unionised. You yeah. see, and they're, and they're going against it. No, but the point is that it, it all, all comes costs, down to money. It does all come down to money, and, and how much? Can, money. How much can the government spend? So they've. Been how much through, can the government allow other people to spend to yes. some extent? Uh, but it's got to come from somewhere. Does it come from tax? Uh, or does it come from somewhere? The, the only choice mm. is tax or debt, isn't it? Mm. Supposedly. Uh, so we'll look next week about you know well, can they can yeah. they spend more without pushing taxes up more? Which comes uh, down to this whole idea that actually by spending more, you perhaps boost the economy yes. in ways that you don't if you have austerity. You know, sound money. Well, I mean, we don't need to look too far for the evidence on that because yeah. we just need to look at what austerity has done to the UK. Yeah. We've got one of the lowest growth rates in the OECD. Uh, you could say Brexit is part of that, but austerity has certainly had its impact as well. So well, there's lots of theories out there, and many of them are going to be discussed, of course, at Davos, which is going on uh, in Switzerland, where there's a sense that uh, the great and the good, if that's indeed what they are, are talking about the future of the global economy. And one of the things that will be on the agenda somewhere in there, you can be pretty sure, mm. is modern monetary theory, MMT. So we'll look at that, and uh, in the light of public spending numbers out next week as well. So we'll find out just how much debt the government is in, how is that funded, we'll look at all of that, and is MMT part of the answer to that? We'll look at that next week. On the Y Curve, see you then. Bye. The Y. Curve.